and welcome to PRISM. PRISM is a design-oriented podcast hosted by me, Dan Hardin. Like a glass prism that reveals the color hidden inside white light, this podcast will reveal the inside story behind innovation, especially the people that make it happen. My aim is to uncover each guest's unique point of view, their insights, their methods, or their own secret motivator, perhaps, that fuels their creative genius. Today, I'm talking with James Wallman. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. You are a best-selling author, entrepreneur, futurist, keynote speaker, and government advisor. That's interesting. I'd like to hear about that. Uh, The UK government, right? Yeah, I'm also a dog walker. Um, uh, Why isn't that the first thing on your your bio? (laughs) It didn't used to be my thing, but, you know, I also pick up dog poo, therefore. Uh, But that's, you know, I gave a talk yesterday and, you know, when someone introduces you and you always hear this kind of list of things that you've done and you always kind of think, oh, wow, listen to that. That sounds good. And then you kind of have, especially, uh, you know, since we've entered the kind of Zoom world of of working from home, you know, during this COVID time, you think, well, actually, I'm at home. We're all at home doing our thing, isn't it? Trying, so trying to get through this thing. It's so good to bring it down to a human level, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's why okay, having a dog but, is so good. But I do do those other things as well. That's true. Okay, yeah. you have done some significant. Yeah, yeah. Things, yeah. That's why we wanted you on this yes. program. Um, <laughs> you've also written two best-selling books about the experience yeah. economy. Yeah, suffocation, which I read when I met you, and time and how to spend it, which the Financial Times named one of the must-read books of 2019. You also run the Strategy, Innovation, and Futures Consultancy. The future is here. That'll be interesting to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And your opinions have appeared in so many different places, New York Times, Financial Times, The Economist, Wired, etc. And let's see, what else here? You advise the British government and your role as sector specialist for the experience economy. There's a lot of interesting stuff to unpack here with you. And the reason I invited you is the things that you think about are things that I think industrial designers like me and the people that will be listening to this should hear about. You know, it's like, why are we designing? What is the context of our work? What is the definition of prosperity? Um, You know, ever since the founding of industrial design over 100 years ago, its primary business objective has been to sell more product. Because the corporate rationale was that if you made your products better looking back then, they would be more marketable. And they were. You know, those early industrial designers, they, they proved that. And their design helped to catapult these companies like General Electric and John Deere and IBM and all these amazing companies that they, you know, became. But since then, Design has certainly evolved into a much more sophisticated and multidimensional profession that considers not only product appearance, but the entire user experience, where we're really just trying to optimize, you know, starting with the initial brand exposure all the way to product disposal. So nowadays, almost every aspect of the product is researched and tailor-made for a desired market effect. But one key, and I'm coming to the major question here, one key factor remains the same. The core purpose of especially industrial design is to sell more product and fuel prosperity. Specifically, its purpose is to fuel prosperity as defined by our capitalist model, which means making more money. And it's all about profit. 
cost reduction, shareholder value, and going to number one, right? But what about what about people? You know, what if, what about experience design, and how can we evolve this model of prosperity to be more of a humanistic nature? What about well-being? What about happiness? What about the things that you write in your book? What are your opinions about this? And and then even maybe maybe insert some of your more recent thoughts, because I think in regards to what we now consider prosperity, I think after the pandemic, maybe we would all question, what does prosperity mean to me? What do you think about these things? I think a lot about these things. I think that is an incredible, an incredibly good, rich question. Uh, I feel like I feel like you set me up here to kind of I could riff from what you've just said for probably three to four hours. I, I think love you, it. You, do it, man. <laughs> well, I won't do that because nobody wants to listen for that long, and that's that's fair. Enough. But it's such a it's it's such a rich point that you made. I've been thinking about. In fact, I was re-looking at. I don't know if you're you're probably a fan of the Atlantic. Um, of course. And, and in 1927, you may or may not know this. There was a wonderful. Um, uh, essay published by a guy called Ernest Elmo Calkins called Beauty, the New Business Tool. Have you come across yeah. that? Is that is that like a famous piece that people know about? Because it's such an important, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's an important turning point. It's exactly what you were talking about there in terms of what first came. And actually, you can see it in cars as much as anything. So first of all, you have, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution produces these, Henry Ford produces these cars, and he makes that crazy statement uh, about how once somebody has one of his cars, they should never need to buy another one. I, I can't remember the verbatim quote, but something yeah. like that, okay? And that seems to him like a good idea because he keeps selling cars. And um, then along comes um, Alfred Sloan and others, but Alfred Sloan in particular, uh, General Motors, who does something incredibly simple. He sort of changes a few details and some colours by season. He borrows an idea which originated back with Louis XIV, actually, in the time of Louis XIV and the luxury industry with the idea of the seasons, which is where we all borrow these ideas from, right? So you can go way back to Louis XIV for this, but the people that really got it right are, of course, the Americans, and you can see this in the car thing. And so in the 1920s, you had this wonderful situation where the problems of making stuff that was good had sorted, no, I mean, of course we've evolved since then, but, you know, there were good toasters, there were washing machines that worked, yes. there were cars that worked. But in order to, what you needed to do is to get people to buy more and to keep buying. And there was a debate at the time about whether, as this was the problem of overproduction or as it also was seen as underconsumption. So this was the real moment. The 1920s was the uh, a flex point, the shift from... Um, an industrial economy to a consumer economy. And for the mm -hmm. first time ever, we saw rising standards of living that have been sustained over pretty much a century, which is incredible. And of course, yeah. the Americans did it first and then the Brits and the, the other countries copied it because what this led to was this consumer-driven, materialistic economy where people would buy more stuff than they need. And of course, consumer engineering was both... Um, in terms of not changing the, the, the function of the product, but the aesthetic of the product, exactly as you're talking about there in terms of industrial design uh, or one, one element of it, but also consumer engineering in terms of credit. Well, the thing is, if people don't have money to buy a car, they won't buy a car. But if you 
loan them the money to buy a car, if you give them credit card, they will go and buy that car and they will buy these houses, etc. And what that does is it fuels the economy. And what that's led to is an incredible, unprecedented rise in standards of living that humans didn't have till then. It's really easy. You know, lots of these millennials today, um, now I'm sounding old, but we'll really kind of be cross about what's happened. You know, obviously what's going on in the environment is terrible. We have, we have real problems. But they forget that until from the point in the 1920s, really, the, the masses for the first time got a chance to have really good standards of living. I've given talks where I've stood up at the beginning and said, who's had a shower here today? <laughs> Yeah, and of course, you know, you have a few people that go, you can see them, maybe it's in the UK, that go a bit red, but generally everyone sort of laughs. And then I say, okay, imagine what, Queen, think about Queen Victoria for a moment. Now, you know, geographically, the British Empire was the most successful ever. I think you co it covered about 20-something percent of the world's mass. You could, you could go around the world pretty much without leaving, was it Queen Victoria? Yeah, Queen Victoria. Yeah, without leaving Queen Victoria's land. There's a very wealthy woman. Then, you, then I say to people, what do you think her shower was like? Okay, do you think she had a good shower? Now think about the shower that you used this morning. Whose shower do you think was better? Now, not in terms of, of course, she probably had some pretty amazing mosaics, right, um, in her shower. But, <laughs> but think about the ability to choose the water temperature and the water pressure that you had. Chances are, Dan, you had a better shower this morning than Queen Victoria had for the whole of her life. Is all everything you just talked about, you know, the rise of, of consumerism and product and materiality and conveniences. Yes, they make our life, we feel better perhaps in the moment. Do you think it makes us happier? All this consumption and stuff and materiality and even design. I mean, I, I think it does. It's so hard to, for me to like place myself back in like 1880. <laughs> would, I be, would, I, would I be as happy as I am now in 1880? Or how much of, of what we have done with after the Industrial Revolution has contributed to my happiness? Yeah. Hey, that's a, it's, it's a brilliant philosophical question. Um, the thing is, living the, you know, we can go back to Aristotle for the idea of living the unconsidered life is not worth living. And consideration is design. So whether you're thinking about the design, the design is choices, right? So whether that's the design of a car, design of a home, design of a life, design of how you spend your time, mm -hmm. this is design. Design is about choices, I think. So therefore, um, yeah, there's loads of stuff that's come with materialistic consumerism and the Industrial Revolution, which I think has been terrible for us. But one of the things that's come with it is the ability to have health care, which means that we live longer lives. So we've got a lot of we've got a lot more time to be miserable in, at which point we can make some choices. And I think that too many people have got caught up in, in the bad sides. There's a wonderful book by a guy called. Uh, oh, forgive my uh, my memory for a moment, but the book is called The, the High Price of Materialism. And he's at Knox University. It's a brilliant book. And the, the problem with being materialistic, it's really bad for your well-being. If you think you're going to find happiness in stuff outside of you, and this is one of the problems that came with materialistic consumerism, was that we, we ended up thinking that if you get the girl, the guy, uh, the car, also the job, right? It, 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 there was a there was an incredible shift in the 20th century from ideas that were internal and thinking that happiness was about being honest and, um, you know, having integrity to being much more the, 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 the culture of personality rather than character. So everything is about outside and you'll find mm -hmm. happiness outside of you. Uh, and that 
is, has been really negative. So, and that's where my work comes in. I refer to that Ernest, uh, 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 Ernest Demo Calkins piece, partly because I think that in the same way that that essay of his, um, Beauty is the, the New Design Tool, I want to write a piece for the Atlantic called Experience the New Design Tool, the New Business Tool, forgive me. Because I think that um, we're at a point today where products are good, services are good. Uh, if you go with the, the concept in the book, The Experience Economy, about the progression of economic value, of how we've risen from agrarian to industrial to service and now to an experience economy, all those things that have come before have become commoditized. And the, and the soup, the great example for this, really, and this is borrowing from Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore, who wrote this book, is coffee. If you think about the value of coffee beans, they're not worth so much, right? If you think about the service, uh, industrial goods, so you think about buying, uh, you guys have Nescafe? Yes, or just Right, oh, yeah. okay. So, you know, if you buy Nescafe, you know, instant coffee from your local uh, uh, store, that's, I don't know what that costs, what, $4 or something for a, mm-hmm. but per cup, it's probably like 25 cents a cup. And then you get a, a coffee, a ser- you know, a service good in a local cafe. Maybe that's, well, that's going to be like three, $4 for yeah. a cup, yeah. right? And then you go to Starbucks, or you go to, you go to Starbucks, it's probably going to be what, five, $6 for a venti mm-hmm. latte, no real milk, uh, you know, some sort of special thing. You can end up spending six, seven dollars on a coffee, or you go to a speciality place and, and, and pay even more as well, right? So you yeah. can see at each level here, what's happened is the, the previous incarnation of, um, the economy, the, the previous thing in terms of, uh, the progression of economic value has less and less value and it's become commoditized. Sure. And so if, as a designer, if as a business you want to stand out, if you want to connect with customers and, and where customers are seeing value and if you want to be, move beyond being commoditized so you can charge a premium to be successful, you need to think about the next level here. So you can't make money from commodities. It's hard to make money from products. It's hard to make money from services and really where you need to play, where you're make, creating the, the greatest amount of value and therefore you're putting yourself in a position to capture the most value is through the experience. Absolutely. And I think even what we're doing right now, you know, I have a lot of hardware around me, these commoditized products. They're good ones. But what we're doing now is something far more than that. It's the services and the software. It's enabling us to communicate that we are the way that we are. This is the experience economy happening right now, what we're doing right now. Yeah. I saw this in China, actually, a statistic, and it said that something like 93% of people there said that if it was a choice between their iPhone or WeChat, they ditched the iPhone. Yeah. Ironically, there's a parallel drive happening because there's still this insatiable desire to consume amazing design, right? We're seeing this everywhere. Design has become commoditized, yes. But more people appreciate it, more people see it. They want that identity. They want the brand association. But what I'm seeing is, this insatiable drive is creating this disposable economy. Of course, uh, people are consuming product the way that they watch TikTok. It's so fast. You know, people will buy something and look at my cool new headphones, and and yet it becomes a fad, and they, they might put it down after a month, and it's 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 gone. They're on to the next thing. So, how do we reconcile these this dichotomy of of 
yes, we understand the experience economy. We want it, but we also want more hardware. There's a lot of want, isn't there, mm. in society today? Well, that's, I mean, again, this comes back to the structure of the design. And I think it was Vic, Victor Leblow who wrote fantastically on this in the 1950s. And at the heart of the consumer project is consumer dissatisfaction. Somebody has to think what they have isn't as good as the next thing that comes along. And that, I, I, I'm not anti that because, look, that's, that's also called progress. And the fact that so many people not just have this insatiable desire to have better things, but that it's available to them, that it's possible to them. And this just wasn't possible for our, for our ancestors in the masses. But I'm not going to fully agree with you that this insatiable drive exists for more and more products and it's about the brands. Because take these headphones that you can see I'm, I'm, I'm wearing here, these, um, mm -hmm. well, they're Sony's ones, and I got them in New York when I was there just before the pandemic, and they are awesome. I did some research, but my brother did some research and he got a pair by, it wasn't Sony, it was some other firm, but you know, they're the great noise cancelling headphones. They work, they do a really good job. Yeah. Of course, what happens here, same with, I mean, you know, some, somebody figures out a way to do this, like Tesla, for example, of how to do, um, you know, electric cars and it's amazing. And you get that innovator and then yeah. someone else figures out how to do it too. And then it becomes not quite commoditized yet, but that will happen. My work as a trend forecaster I've been doing since 2004 is understanding how things change through our societies. And this is, Dan, I may have told you this when we were drunk in Vegas that time, so stop me here if this is too much. But um, the way this works, and this, this is based on work originally by a sociologist at the University of Iowa in 1962. It's something called the Diffusion mm. of Innovations. It was originally the back end of his um, PhD uh, thesis, but it became this book. And this observes how ideas spread through any community, and it works, uh, <laughs> it works everywhere. It's also people call it the technology adoption curve nowadays. I've seen it called that, mm -hmm. but it's all borrowed from um, um, uh, Everett Rogers, the sociologist who figured this out. And it basically works in a way that you, you'd have seen this. It's, it's the smooth S-curve of adoption. You get sure. the innovators who try something first, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and then the laggards, the ones who, mm -hmm. you know, the people that still have landline phones. Right. Right. Actually, I don't. Yeah, my mum still has one, but not many people have them anymore. Oh right? man, yeah, they're yeah. almost extinct here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Or people that, who that is the classic adoption curve that, <laughs> that we're all we're all, especially as designers, we're all familiar with that. We, we try to extend, lengthen, and elevate that curve. We try to control that curve, that adoption curve, but we're not very good at it. I would argue. When you say control, it surely as a designer, the idea is to push it steep as possible to get yes. as many people as buy your products. Yeah, okay, fine. Well, you, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're an expert. And also that, so for, for a more timeless experience, you know, we, we really seek that. The opposing force, of course, is technology, because even those headphones that you're wearing now, as good as they are, and I think you were trying to convince me that, that no, I'm, uh, that, that is a good product that, that is lasting, and I am satisfied with it. I'm going to stick with it. But I'm going to guess that in a year, something better is going to come along and you're going to want that. So there's, there's technology is working against that curve. So maybe it's okay to have cyclical adoption curves where you have a wonderful experience with a product and then you have another one after that. Just I know that this is for a podcast, but you can see me on this screen. Can you see how old this iPhone is? Uh, oh, my gosh, you actually have a real button on the bottom. 
it, it does what I need it to do. And I also don't have email on my phone. So I make, I don't have email on my phone. I don't have Twitter on my phone um, because I've done the research on what you should do in order to be happy. And this is partly this thing about uh, talking about this, this move. I'm not talked about it yet, but this move, I believe from materialism to experientialism is to do with the fact that we've reached, it's not anti-materialism, it's more kind of super, and I mean super with the Latin term, on top of materialism. Now we have enough things, what we should look for, the smart person who just stops for a moment, and let's use Ferris Bueller as the great philosopher, um, life moves pretty fast, you should stop and look around him once in a while, otherwise you're going to miss it, um, what you want out of life is not to die as the person with the most toys in the graveyard. You want to winning nowadays, I think is changing. You want to get the most out of the existence you have. You want to live a long and healthful life. Yes. Look at, look at the push towards healthiness because it, I mean, in the old days, you'd live a certain time, you do your job, you get your gold watch and you'd have a short retirement and die. And that's why, all those systems made sense. But now people are living longer and we're much more conscious of, of what life is going to be like when we're in our 70s and our 80s and our 90s mm -hmm. because obviously there's just been a knock to uh, life expectancy, expectancy because of this, um, this pandemic. But I think it's not just about gathering things, but thinking, okay, I've got this four score years and 10 and hopefully, you know, more kind mm -hmm. of thing. But what it's been... And I want to live a healthy, fulfilling life. And I want to have this sense of life satisfaction. Um, and within a consumer, I think a consumer society gives us that opportunity. We're lucky. One of the magical things is spare money spent on healthcare. But how do you, how do you retool our description of what gain in one's life means? You know, it, it just seems like society is on this this drive to consume all the time. And I, I agree with you. You don't need all of that stuff. You really don't. You think about it. I, I even have to force myself at the end of the day, you know, probably around eight o'clock at night. I just decide I'm not going to look at my phone anymore. I will listen to music, play the guitar, do some art. And I feel this pull, you know, I feel the pull like, Oh, I really should be in contact. Oh, what if I miss this? And I have to just tell myself, no, you don't need to do that. But what, you know, I think there are a lot of people that, that maybe don't realize that they have these choices. And are we conditioned? Are we conditioned as, as people to, to overconsume? I think, I think we are. And how do, how, do we, how do we deal with that? That's a superb question. I think we are conditioned to consume. And the problem is no one tells us how to stop because that's what the system is based around. And that's one of the, you know, exactly. that's the reason for the success of our system. And this is this, I think this is why this book time and how to spend it has had some resonance and caught on with some people uh, and why the FT liked it. Because one of the things that it looks at is that we're taught to consume, but we're not taught how to spend our time. Everyone, everyone wants to learn the skills of production, but not, you know, we want to get an MBA. You want to learn how to do social media. You want to learn how to code. But no one wants to learn the skills of consumption, of how to manage your time. And it's interesting that you have that pulled down as someone who's really successful. When you talk about listening to music, 
I'm guessing you've got a record player. You got a record player or no? I do, yes. Ah, nice. And the joy, right? The joy yeah, of analog. Yes. The crackle, right. the pops. Yeah, yeah exactly. Listening to some old albums, you know. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Since I was 16. You know, no, that, 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 there's a difference. My, my kids have just got into uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, or my daughter, she's just about to turn 10. And I'm like, you know, I've got a record of that, guys, before he was on the TV. And she's like, she's super <laughs> impressed. Anyway. I love it. Um, I love it. But look, what, what we need to do, is not just think about the skills of production, but the skills of consumption, the skills of living. There's a friend of mine, a guy called Brian Hill, who's at Brigham Young University in, I guess it's in Salt Lake City, but it's, it's in, in Utah. And his is the most popular class. He has like 700 people come to his class. And he's an experienced design professor. Mm-hmm. Um, and he takes the, the learnings from how to design experiences and translates that for people into this is what you should do with how you spend your time. Um, and I'm nudging him. And actually, I think he's going to write the book, which is great news. And that's what I did with time and how to spend it. I talked to people much smarter at me at places like BYU and Stanford and MIT and um, LSC in London and Oxford and Cambridge and Tokyo. And I took their ideas and I sort of formed it into something simple that people can use to think about how they spend their time. And the same structure, Dan, um, and I, I'm sure I've, um, I've pitched this to you many times, so forgive me, but can be used for any designer who's designing somebody's time. And when you think about designing an experience, your design, it's quite a responsibility because you're designing, when you design an experience, you're designing somebody's time. My first book, Stuffication, looked at how should you spend, our, how should we spend our money? And the answer was spend less on stuff, spend more on experiences, it will make you happier. And the follow-on was a, was a response to the question that people would say to me, this is great, James, spend on experiences, great. So what kind of experiences sh- should I choose? I didn't know the answer. Mm-hmm. And the answer, when you think about it, is, okay, these are the experiences you should choose, which is really saying, this is how you should spend your time. And if you think Mm -hmm. of the currency of the first book, Stuffication, was money, how should you spend your money, stuff or experiences, the currency of experiences, yes, it's money. Yes, if you um, fly to Vegas for the weekend, if you, you know, go to Hawaii, if you, I I, I don't know, you know, go to an amazing restaurant or you go to a theme park or or whatever you do with your time, Mm But the most important thing you're spending is time because you can go get more money. You can get a higher paid job. You can get another client. And you can stretch your time a little bit if you restrict the calories you eat, if you go jogging, if you do weight training. You know, these things will make you live a little bit longer. But you're going to die. And you won't. You can't buy another week very much. But you can get more money. So when you think about your experiences you really ought to make the right decisions because I'm borrowing from the American writer, Annie Dillard, how we spend our days is, she says, of course, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And so from a personal point of view, knowing how to spend your time, if you don't know how to do that, you're a fool. And from a designer's point of view, if you're designing somebody's time, if you're designing an experience, and that could be EX for employee experience. It could be a product because a product will come with the time you spend with it. It could be the experience at a theme park. It could be the experience in a restaurant, in a, in an airport. It could be in a retail store, in a mall, wherever. That's one hell of a responsibility, actually. Especially the more successful you are, the more people you reach, the more that your product scales, you have a responsibility to those people. I think you have an opportunity you can help them live a better life or you can waste their time and drain it away in a negative way. And then you can wake up the next day thinking, I sell cigarettes 
or I do something that's good for people. How can do you have advice for designers on on how they can absolutely make sure that they are imbuing these qualities of time in their solution? In other words, should designers build in affordances in a design that make people aware that they are consuming their time on something of value? Or should a product have more of an ambient presence so that you can think more about just the general experience and the, the product, the thing, the materiality is, is just, it's just there. It might, sometimes I call, I wrote something called the disappearing act of good design. Because sometimes, you know, like, well, I'm sitting on an Aeron chair. When I look at the Aeron chair, it's a very beautiful thing, right? Well, it's not beautiful. I don't think it's beautiful. But it, there's functionally, some functionally, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. But when I'm using it, I'm not thinking about it because it's supporting me and it's doing its job. But when I step away from it, I look at it, then I start to appreciate it for what it is. But during the consumption, it's ambient. So that was that's related to my question. So how should designers design in this element of time in your opinion because i yeah we all need to be a little bit more consciously aware especially when i see kids like on video games now there's something as present that's design presenting something to them they're enjoying it they're engrossed in it um but how does that apply to more everyday consumer products um such a deep and interesting question I want to come back to what you're saying about affordances and, and, and whether a product is, is, is good or bad for you. And I'm going to wander a little bit, if you don't mind. No, My first thought is the difference between a service and an ex- as There's a distinction between a service and an experience as an economic offering, but also as a thing. And what I mean by that is in terms of there are certain things that should be seamless and get out of your way, like booking an airline ticket, like... Uh, going through an airport, you know, if you're flying commercial rather than flying private, right? You want that to be as smooth and you don't want to notice it or managing your taxes. Guy on the call yesterday from Sweden, uh, but a British guy, actually brilliant UX designer. You come across him, a guy called Joe McLeod. He's written this wonderful stuff on engineering about the design of the endings of things. Super interesting. Yes. Um, I've heard of him. Okay. And uh, he was saying that, so taxes, I don't know how painful taxes are for you uh, in the the U.S., but taxes in the U.K. are a real pain, right? Real pain. (laughs) I can guarantee you they're they're more painful here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, you know, there are are companies uh, that have come in to try and make it easier for us. And, of course, we all have Uh, our, you know, um, know, we have our our, um, accountants to help us, et cetera. But apparently in Sweden, it's a joyful experience. I don't even understand what that means yet. Okay. I'll be absolutely honest with you, but we're going to investigate it. And one of my uh, writers is going to speak to him. We're going to get a piece together on this, although he's a great writer too. Um, that said, of course, in the, in the, during the pandemic, because we have the NHS, I feel very happy to pay my taxes because they've kept us all alive. Lovely people. If paying taxes can be joyful, that gives me hope that yeah. many things in this world can be solved. And that's where great design comes in. It's a really yeah. good example. You know, I, th- I, I think good design is really good design. You often don't notice it because it's so damn good, right? As you yeah. say, you mentioned your chair. You just don't, don't. I mean, that's the point yeah. of that chair. But then <laughs> an experience is different in that you sh- should notice it because a service should be intangible uh, and seamless and simple. But experience, 
Uh, there's a difference between every day, but you know, uh, you know, big experiences should be noticeable because they should be memorable, meaningful, and possibly transformational. So there are different moments in the journey of a, uh, of a, uh, uh, that a person might have with a product or with a service or with an experience that has different. Um, and I'm borrowing it from a guy called Mike Lai, who is uh, runs something called Tango, Tango UX or something. Ooh, I should know that in uh, Shanghai, but he's like an American Chinese guy. And he was talking about the um, the journey of any kind of experience through something. And there are different moments where you want it to be perfectly smooth, a really good service, and you want the product to work. And there are other moments where you need it to be a really amazing experience that is meaningful for you that you I, actually I notice. Think that's an interesting point. In some ways, I want I want my service to be minimal and my experience to be maximal. Yeah. Okay. That's a quote and, there. Thank you. I'll borrow that. But and, and I don't even know if maximal is a word. Oh no, it is. It is. I uh, use that one. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we. You know, we talk about Omega Mart. Uh, Omega Mart, the new thing from Meow Wolf that's just opened in Vegas, and those guys come from Santa yeah. Fe, and they talk about maximalism and being maximalist because they want their stuff to be noticed in a world that's been homogenized, a world that's been commoditized, and where everyone's like, oh, let's be minimal, which is all about exactly what you said. Maximum, yeah. welcome back. Maximum, yeah. Maximalism in the right place. Yeah, but the service, what I mean by service being minimal is, you know, uh, something like Amazon, for example, comes to mind, you know, yeah. five years ago when you bought something on Amazon, oh my God, I got to get my credit card out. And oh, they didn't remember me from the last time. Dot, dot, dot. Now I just load things in my cart and I press buy now and it's all automated, right? That's a service that works well for me. Then even receiving it lands on my porch. It's minimal. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm really more interested. In- That's a great example of a service. That's yeah. not an ex- I would describe that as a service, not an experience. Would you mind if I come back to that affordances point you were asking about? Absolutely. I thought it was yeah. very interesting. I think from the point of view of the designer, this, you know, the starting point is to, the starting point is the end of what's the impact this is going to have on a person's existence and their yes. time. And I'm going to borrow here from a guy called Michael Brown. Gartner, who who is the guy who came up with the concept of the, the circle to circle and the circular economy. Yep. Uh, Michael Browngart, the uh, the chemist. And I remember him talking, we were both giving uh, talks at some conference in Belgium or Luxembourg or something. He talked about um, how everyone talks about the idea of reducing their carbon footprint, reducing their footprint. And he said, let's just flip that around why not increase your footprint, but have a positive footprint instead? So if instead of thinking about your product, so let's say, I mean, you know, you can think about what Tristan Harris has done here in terms of technology um, and, you know, the ethical point of view that lots of these things are designed to keep us on our phone. And, you know, they talk about TOD, time on device, um, which is obviously where they can make money. And this is what's happening in Vegas with the slot machines, et cetera. Um, and, and that's what these things have become. They're Skinner boxes, of course, for people, right? They're, they're designed to keep us there again and again and again. And, of course, when you're doing that, you know that you have a, a negative human footprint. You're having a negative footprint on that person's existence, not so always, it, but yeah, go on. No, 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 that's what I was going to say. So if you look at the product you're making and you recognize that it has that, you have to maybe look at yourself in the mirror and think, okay, am I basically a tobacco seller? Am I one of these people? And I, can I go to bed at night and feel okay that that's what I'm doing to people? In which case, you mm-hmm. go ahead. 
you know, mine the planet, destroy the place, uh, and, and see if you can look your children in the face and be happy with what you do. Or maybe if you recognize that this is fun, but only so much fun, let's take alcohol as a great example, right? There's a difference between use and abuse. It's exactly the same with technology, the addiction stuff. If you look at Adam Alter's, you know, Adam Alter at NYU, with the fantastic he's, work he's done, most recent book, Irresistible, and he compares um, addiction to devices exactly like addiction to, to drugs like alcohol. You know, having a drink is great. Using alcohol is fantastic. And there's uh, data that shows, I mean, of course, there's data, that shows, there's data that shows that a bit of alcohol makes you happy. Who doesn't love a beer on a Friday afternoon, right? <laughs> Who doesn't enjoy that first few glasses sure. of champagne or, you know, a mojito on a beach or whatever. But there is a point of diminishing returns. You know, let's go back to Jeremy Bentham when he talked about his first cup of coffee in the morning gave him this much pleasure and then the next one less pleasure, et cetera. It's mm-hmm. the same with so many things, right? So if your product... If the diminishing returns kicks in soon and it ends up being really negative for a person, gambling, drinking, maybe, um, you know, certain games on your phone or whatever, maybe the responsible thing to do is go, okay, fine, let's try and figure out a way to make money because this is addictive and well done to us. Um, ensure these people have a good time, but do it in, a, in the way that supports them to like, you know, let's drink... Um, uh, you know, let's drink some beer and some champagne, but let's not do it for days and days on end because that's bad for us. Right. And then if you flip that around, so instead of being concerned that your product or service or whatever the thing you produce has a has the potential to have a negative human footprint, if it has a positive human footprint, let's take running as a great example. Let's take, um, the you know, the Spartan race or something like this. Mm-hmm. If you know it's got a positive for people, go for it. Get them, get them hooked. Think about sports. Sports is fantastic. Whether people are playing sports or watching sports, the positives that are associated with sport, why not turn those people into sports addicts? They're called fans, which fans is another word for consumers, Mm -hmm. but it's a word for consumers who love it so much, they keep coming back, you know? Yeah. I love the idea of building in these mechanisms within a product solution, a design solution where it can be responsive. So if there is a waning of the experience, if the experience is falling off, if that third cup of coffee isn't doing it for you anymore, you know, as an analogy to a product, to have something in that product, and some software does this, where the, where the product begins to adjust itself for a, a changing condition. There's something interesting there. That's Sounds awesome. Are you designing something like that at the moment? Is that something you're working on or is it just a, a thought? Uh, yeah, I, I love it. No, it's, it's just more of a thought picking up on what you just said. And uh, certainly in software, you know, we try to do that. You know, good, good UX design does that automatically. But in product, it's harder to do because so many things are, you know, these tangible material requirements and functionalities. You know, it's like you can't expect your drill to change for the contractor that has carpal tunnel syndrome. So um, I also want to come back to this thing you said about the starting point is the end. And I think more industrial designers need to think about that. First of all, as as an industrial designer, you are automatically a futurist because what you're trying to do is think about, okay, I'm, I'm drawing something now. I'm catting something now. But what you need to do is project out into the future 
and place your product in the hands and minds of that end user? And will it have the desired effect a year from now or two or five years from now when this finally hits the market that I think it should have now when you're designing it? And too many designers are designing for the now. Like they make themselves feel good. They sometimes even feed their ego by creating some something that is satisfying to them without thinking about that endpoint. That endpoint is so far in the future sometimes. And the future keeps changing. So by the time your design hits the market, it might be irrelevant. It might be like, oh my gosh, that you know, and some designers are often surprised, like, well, I didn't expect it to be received like that. And it can be either negative or positive. You know, sometimes you just get it right by luck. But starting the starting point being the end, there's something there's something really fascinating there. Trend forecaster in future. This is the moment I try and pitch my services. (laughs) (laughs) Telling the future. Well, but telling the future, figure out what's going to happen is, of course, it's the great unknown. Um, And there are things you can do. You know, know, if you think about Schumpeter and the idea of, you know, creative destruction, and you think about the magic of the marketplace means that all sorts of people create all sorts of things. And some of those things flop and fail terribly and some of them fly and take off and, and who knew? And, you know, it's not when something's created where when someone's also created a business model around it that makes it work, you know, Mm -hmm. innovation is, you know, so, I guess it gets taught nowadays and people get it. It's not just having a great idea. It's everything that comes with it. And, you know, sometimes people just miss that point so badly. Think about flight as a wonderful example. It wasn't in 1903 the flying literally took off. It was, was it the 80s that it started to meet, miss, yeah. you know, reach the masses, really? You know, it took a, took a long time to affect war. You know, First World War wasn't particularly impacted by flying, but, of course, the Second World War was crucially around flying. So... I mean, when I try and advise people on doing this, so the way that the way that I work in terms of thinking about what the future is going to look like, it's using this diffusion of innovations. So it's looking at what the um, actually there's a structure that I use. It's about the seed in the soil, and the seed is the innovations that I see happening around, and the soil is the macro environmental factors that exist. And uh, I, I mentioned uh, diffusion of innovations. I, I base my work around. Everett Rogers' work, but also using what the RAND Corporation came up with in the 60s and stuff that I've added to this over time. But one of the things that's really interesting, I think, is here is that if you look at Everett Rogers would look at five different things to figure out if a innovation was likely to take off. And you can remember this as because, B-E-C-O-S. And the B is for, is it better? And better, just to be really clear, is a really moot point. Better could be functionally better. It could be economically better. Um, it could. It, you need to understand the target market very well. Uh, the E, though, is is it easy to understand? Mm-hmm. Um, because things that are complex just throw people. You know, the C is, is it compatible with how we do things now? So you can think about the ideas that people had for new versions of uh, transport back in the 80s. There was something in the UK called the Sinclair C5, which is this sort of like cross between a, a go-kart and a, a car. And it made all sorts of sense for the city, but it was so far removed what pe- from what people thought about it. It just didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Segway is a good example. 
The thing that was supposed to change our lives, it wasn't compatible with sidewalks. Okay. I mean, it also makes you look like an absolute idiot, which is the O. The <laughs> yes. O is, is it observable? Now, the thing about the Segway, what's kind of interesting, actually, it is observable because we've all seen tourists looking like idiots on Segway. Yeah. <laughs> right? So yeah. Segway found a niche. But observable, a really good example is those city bikes or... Um, you have lime scooters where you are, presumably. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So That's we don't story. we don't really have them so much around here because they're illegal in the UK. Uh, I used them when I was in Bordeaux uh, a, a while back. They're just you know the reason that scooters are taken off for adults. I mean, I'm old enough to think that it makes people look silly, but still, is they they solved the last mile problem so well, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I, I know last mile is in terms of delivery, but they solve that kind of, you know, if you live in a city, you want to get a short distance away, but you see other people on it. You see that it's a convenient way to get about. It looks kind of handy and easy. And, you know, and also, okay, when it comes to the S, um, actually I got the, the E and the S are quite simple. The E is easy to try and the S is simple to understand. So forgive me. The S is simple to understand. The E is easy to try. Is it right there and then? If you think about a, a Lime, for example, is you put your credit card in and you can take it. You can have a go. It's a really easy way to try yeah. things. Okay? Where this is kind of interesting, I think, so Everett Rogers identified these uh, factors back in the 60s. Um, and a guy called um, BJ Fogg at Stanford you may have come across. He's the guy who's known for his tiny habits. He set up the behavioral design practice at Stanford. He's fairly famous for one of his classes that became known as, I think, the Facebook class, because from about 2006, seven or something, a bunch of people that were in his class used his, used everything he was teaching about, about behavioral psychology. And they went on to become, you know, like the growth marketing person at LinkedIn and the, and the head of this at Facebook and the head of that. And one of the people in his class set up Instagram, you know, so basically they took all his tools wow. on how to design behavior and they used it on humans. Okay. And uh, it turns out you can create very addictive products and, and, and BJ likes to distance himself from that work as well. Um, and if you've come across near IL's work, so near studied with him, uh, you know, the guy who wrote hooked, um, okay, yeah. and, um, if you look at, so one of the things, if you look at, um, PJ Fogg's thing, which is B equals MAT. So behavior equals motivation, uh, plus or times ability and the T is triggers. And the A about ability is he talks about the six simplicity factors. And these are, so, you know, motivation we all know what that means but simplicity factors are the stuff that makes it either easy or hard for you to do something and the six map almost precisely with the because stuff that everett rogers figures for ideas that take off and the six simplicity factors if i can remember them are um one is um what's the cost and the cost can be the uh the the actual uh price cost uh, or, or, uh but it could also be the physical effort involved or the mental effort involved. He talks mm -hmm. about, are they non-deviant, which is like compatible. So um, for the sake of argument, there was a time when sending somebody a message on LinkedIn or, or, or looking somebody up on LinkedIn was considered weird, uh, but now it's fine mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about, are they simple to understand? Are they easy to try? You know, all these things that might get between you and actually trying this thing, a non-routine it is, mm. is one thing that he talks about as well. So if we are not in the habit of doing something, you may not do it again. Is it better? So, you know, is it easy to try? Is it simple to understand? Is it compatible? Is it observable? Do, do you see what I mean? Yes. So you can, you can look at the product 
that you're the thing that you are creating and you can run it through this mill and you can compare it to, like I say, this is the seed. So we're analyzing the innovation, the product, the thing that you're making. And mm-hmm. you can compare that with the soil. I talk about the seed in the soil because if you can imagine, I don't know how much gardening you do, Dan, but if you put a sunflower seed I'm a, in your I'm garden, a terrible gardener. Okay, most of us are nowadays, right? We buy plants, we don't buy seeds. But imagine in those old days, you'd buy a sunflower seed. You'd want to get a decent sunflower seed that wasn't dried out and cracked and, you know, a weak seed from poor stock or whatever. And then you'd want to put it into rich alluvial soil, you know, decent uh, compost, um, and then you'd water it well, etc. And it's exactly the same with any innovation. So any innovation needs to be a decent seed in the first place, but the soil it lands in needs to be appropriate for it as well. So instead of it being dry desert-like soil, it needs to be rich alluvial soil. And so the way I remember this is this this because, and the structure here is um, Das Steeple. Das is... I remember it because there's a dust boat, the, the German movie. I don't know if you've oh, ever sure. seen that. Of yeah, course. okay, fantastic yeah. movie. Uh, yeah. But dust is, is kind of my addition. Steeple is standards. You may have come across pest or pestle or steeple, the classic taught at business schools. And um, you probably come across it. You know, this is about sociocultural yeah. trends and economic trends and technology and environment, politics, legal, et cetera. You can think about the, the takeoff of marijuana here. Or you can think about actually what's going to happen with the takeoff of psychedelics in the States. You can see Mm -hmm. that the innovators, you can see, is it better? Maybe I'll come back to this. And DAS is um, demographics, aesthetics and science, which I think a bit overlooked in in the classic pest, vessel, steeple way of thinking about things. Because think about science is a great example. Until 1964, the consumption of cigarettes in the United States, you can see the graphs, it's amazing, it went up and up and up and up and up and up and up. In 1964, the US Surgeon General made the very clear statement that smoking leads to cancer. And then what's happened is smoking's gone down and down and down and down. And you can see this in marijuana. It turns out that people that smoke marijuana do not turn into murderous crazies. They just sit around and end up eating a lot of food or (laughs) edibles or whatever, right? Um, And you can see this in psychedelics. So I'm a real believer um, in psychedelics will follow a similar path to marijuana, even though it seems really weird for people that have never, you know, um, taken LSD or DMT or whatever. And, you know, they are quite weird things to take. But if you look at the because side of this, okay, so are they better? Well, they're really good for post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Uh Research in the UK and the States, um, in the UK, a guy called Robin Carhart-Harris has found that, so for people with really bad depression it's really hard to solve people with depression particularly people with um are basically on their way to dying um it turns out that um this has an impact it's, it's like 85 percent successful insane numbers if they could put this in the water they would you know it's incredible so is it better oh. is it now is it easy to try hmm. I mean, you've got to take, probably. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. It's scary for people, which is holding people back. But yes, it's um, easy. But it's not that difficult. And it's, you know, there are ways, you know, obviously it's illegal at the moment too. Is it compatible with how we do things now? Well, we take drugs. Drugs are a thing that people take to make them better, both legal ones and illegal ones. There's the, oh, is it observable? What's really interesting here is once you know somebody, who has, um, I've got a good, very good friend of mine who, who used psychedelics to go from having major alcohol and cocaine issues and being a really depressive person. And he, through 
some somebody else, I can't remember who, and he he ended up taking some ideas, and he's become happy. <laughs> He just like, wow, this stuff, you know, it's amazing. Um, and, you know, so you, you guys got the problems with fentanyl in the States. Yeah, that stuff is really bad. Oh, but this yeah. stuff is actually positive. And then is it simple to understand? Well, here's how it works. You take it in an, a controlled environment. Uh, Michael Pollan's written that fantastic book, How to Change Your Mind About This as well. Um, so you could see how the... Uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the viewing on this is changing and why it makes sense. Um, and a few um, counties in the States are kind of legalizing it to make it possible. There are countries that do it too. Anyway, and then you can compare and think about, so I, I mentioned uh, it was the science that I was talking about. So you can take this kind of because structure and this dust steeple, compare the two and think, is my product service experience likely to be relevant in the future yes especially if you use the diffusion of innovations curve to look at what the innovators are doing today and maybe even the early adopters and you can point the way to the future you know you just said in the last 10 minutes so many fascinating things that i didn't want to interrupt you but this uh, the bicos uh seed to soil your notions of simplicity, DOS. You know, so many designers, innovators, entrepreneurs, etc. We're looking for we're looking for tools of understanding. I think you know, and how do how can we ensure that we're going to create something successful and meaningful and impactful to society and individuals and sustainable and all these values that we always try to instill in our creations. In, in foretelling the future, do you use something like the B-Coast, better, easy, compatible, observable, simple, as kind of a filter to know whether or not something is more likely to become, either take hold, like, like your analysis of psychedelic drugs, for example? Yeah. Um, yeah, because I've been doing that for some, some years, yeah. I love that. Um, and so many things like seed to soil, you know, to a designer, the seed would be, you know, the innovation itself and the soil would be the, the consumption model. And like in our case, you know, the construct of capitalism and consumerism, that's mm -hmm. our soil, right? So we don't necessarily think seed to soil, but um, it, it's happening. It's a really great way to think about it. And simplicity and your descriptions of simplicity and breaking it down into cost and effort and being non-deviant and non-routine, simplicity to designers is, it's kind of like one of our, our doctrines. Hmm. You know, we, we strive for it. It's hard to achieve. Sometimes it's, it, it's so elusive because the harder you try as a creator, sometimes you're adding complexity, not simplicity. It's so hard to get back to the root of what's really good and really meaningful. And sometimes it is something just utterly simple and the simplicity. Why is simplicity so beautiful? I don't know. What is that? What is that? What's going on psychologically about simplicity? Do humans crave simplicity? Why is something simple, beautiful? Wow. I wish I knew the answer to that. I, I'll be honest, I don't. My wife will quote to me, trying to think of the um, the British philosopher who'd said that um, beauty always has something strange within it, which I think has a, has a truth in it, because then you remember it, thinking about that idea of experience versus service. But in terms of um, 
simplicity. I think about the Coco Chanel thing about when, just before you go out, always take one thing off. You know, what can you remove? But there's research conducted by, is it Joseph Goodman that's shown that, um, that people want this stuff. And there's, um, there's a guy called, uh, David Robson. So he's a, he's a science writer and a friend of mine. And he's written something for the BBC the other day about innovators and the great innovators. What you're saying there is interesting is the ones that keep going. Is that we believe that after a while going through brainstorming or coming up with ideas that after a while our ideas will tail off. And actually the research shows the opposite is true. I think about a quote that I used to use talking about this kind of stuff from Johnny Ive about how hard it is to create simplicity. And I think, Look, Dan, I can't, I don't know, how many people have you interviewed for jobs with your firm through the years, would you say? Oh, God. Uh, right. I, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Probably, you know. And how many have tried to impress you with designs and you just thought, oh, my God, that's too much? <laughs> you're just like, no, you're not, I'm, uh, not even, I'm not even, and it's only the, probably the ones who can boil it. Think about Giacometti, you know, the, the, uh, the you know, the artist and the sculptor. Sure, how sure. he takes away everything that it isn't. Yeah. I think there's a, and maybe that's one of the things we should do with life. And maybe that's one of the problems with consumerism is because all these, all this noise, you know, all this incoming noise about with ideas and this stuff that people are trying to sell us and trying to be this, be that, be the other thing. And maybe that's why kind of Zen Buddhism and that kind of approach to things and simplicity and minimalism appeals to people. But just to be really clear, I'm not a minimalist at all because if you're a maximalist, and, and this is from a design perspective, I'm going to borrow what you said there about I want my services to be minimal and I want my experiences to be maximal. I think we want our lives to be maximal, but in the right ways. Mm-hmm. So I want complex, interesting conversations with sophisticated, interesting people. Yeah. You know, I was looking at hiring someone the other day and it ended up being really complicated. And it was that moment I said, oh, this is a red flag. And <laughs> I, just, I just said, I said a really nice, as, as nice as email as I could to say, let's leave this. Um, but I want complex, challenging. You, you've made me think of so many things that I haven't pulled out of the back of my mind for ages. So thank you for that. But I oh, think yeah. ma- maximalism in, um, in our, you know, in our weekends, in our vacations, in our products, only the stuff that's really good. Think about, think, think, yeah, think about a meal. Really simple food cooked really well is good. And you think about some of the yeah. best restaurants and the most successful restaurants don't do the fancy food. They don't mm-hmm. do the El Bully kind of, you know, crazy stuff. They just, there's a restaurant in, in London called Jay Shiki um, that just does simple food really well i think there's a lot to be said about essence Mm. essence of experience essence of expression you know it reminds me of raiku you know just like so few words so few intonations so much meaning and in today's society it just seems like so many people are distracted with with so much stuff where it's uh, people sometimes lose sight of the fact that some of these simple essential things that life has to offer, they're there for the taking, but it's, it's almost like it's so, and it's so ever present, these opportunities to experience the goodness of life. And yet you can't see it. It's almost like radio waves passing through us right now. I can't see it, 
but there's so much of it coming through us right now, even as we speak. What, what is, why is that? There's maybe there's just so much offered that, and it's, it's hard to get the attention of people to really understand, Hey, you know what? It's okay to, to experience the essence. It might be a simple meal. It might be taking 10 minutes to look at a single painting where you start to feel something after not, not 10 seconds. Cause everybody wants that, that instant, like, Hey, where is it? Where's the punchline? You know, like a Rothko, it does not connect with you until you're sitting in, in a dark room with a Rothko, a dim light. And after about 10 minutes, all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, I'm feeling something, this almost like a deep vibration, an understanding, a visual vibration that turns into an intellectual vibration. All of a sudden, so much more is offered to you. That um, That's what I find to be a real meaning of essence. And, and it's so hard for people to, to absorb, to first see the essence and to truly feel it and benefit from it. I like what you said. I agree with you. I think that we, it's those tick box travelers. And there are many people who are tick box travelers through life who just want to get that thing. And they've done it. You know, those people, you know, you know, you know if you talk to those people that do a two week, I guess you probably get people do a two week vacation in Europe and they kind of go to Spain, Italy, Greece. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I did. You know, the people that when they talk about a country, they say, oh, I did that. Yeah. Well, they, they step out of the tour bus. They take the pictures. They get back on the tour bus. It's like, it's not the picture. It's the yeah. experience people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe it's not their fault. And it's definitely not their fault. But the problem is if you watch too much TV and you, you spend too much time online and, and, you, and you're one of those people who's like, you think about a pinball machine. I think lots of people live their lives like they're in a pinball machine and they're getting knocked here and pushed there. And, you know, maybe this is about like being on the ocean and pushed by the waves and the, um, yeah, let's go to surfing as a, as a, as a, as a way of thinking. You know, those people that just get pushed around, they'll just want, you know, just go wherever. And then there are those people that would, will fight it gates maybe the way to get out and then they'll get and they'll ride the thing and maybe that's the i'm warming to this idea of surfing as a metaphor for life and i'm going to play here you know you know mm, the guys um, play with that for a minute <laughs> yeah because it, maybe those people haven't learned that if you stop the way you describe that rothko picture um and obviously you have a few in your home dan um, who doesn't, right? Um, um, not real Rothkos. <laughs> Those are only forty million a piece. Yeah, yeah. But but too too many people just want to see something and have been there, done that, and tick the box. They think that that's life. But the problem with that approach is because you've not paused long enough to appreciate something. Do you realize I got to interrupt you because I love this idea of surfing because a surfer knows that that wave is here for about 20 seconds. You know, the good part of the wave, they appreciate that and they see it coming. They nail it. They ride it. The joy is they know it's very temporary. And if more people would view life like that, that it is very temporary. There is impermanence everywhere certainly in a wave and every condition around it you don't know if you're going to hit a rock you don't know if you're going to be bitten by a shark <laughs> yeah life is the same way yeah 
there's a guy that taught me to surf. I was in Byron Bay, Australia, uh, writing a piece for a magazine. I think it was um, not GQ, Esquire magazine. And um, he taught Elle McPherson on the same board I was learning on. For Elle and I have been in the same place, not at the same time, regrettably, but laying down and then standing up. And I remember he said when the wave would come in, and I, I, I was, I'm a pretty poor surfer, um, he was, I was like, right, you know, I caught the first wave, and he was like, oh, oh wow, okay, you're, you're British, and yet you can actually do this a little bit. He was, I think he was a bit surprised. And, um, and I, you know, I jumped off the wave because I'd caught the, the good bit, and he was like, hold on, that wave has come all the way from the middle of the Pacific, where was I? Yeah, so that's the Atlantic. Or come from the middle of the ocean. You ride it till you can't ride it anymore. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. But I'm totally with you. When I give talks about this this book, time and how to spend it, I'll often start by by pointing out. I use this thing. I can't think how many seconds it is now. I think it's something like sixty four thousand, sixty four thousand, whatever it is. And there's this idea of the time bank. It's from a French guy. And if somebody gave you $64,000 every day and at the end of the day, your bank account went to zero, what would you do is the question. And the number's not exactly that. And, and the answer, Dan, I don't want to jump in, is you'd spend as much as you could because otherwise the money's gone. And that's what life mm -hmm. is like. You get mm -hmm. these 24 hours every day and it's gone. So how you spend it, it's not just about I guess it's not just about the quantity of that time, but it's the quality of that time. And I think what you're talking about there is about um, focusing. And, the, you know, Joseph Campbell, who wrote the book, The Hero sure. with a Thousand Faces, about the hero's journey. And he right. really, he, he moved from the hero's journey, I think, much more into this idea of, being, of vitality and being, feeling alive. Yes. And I think way too many people, and it's like, what's that wonderful zombie movie from the like, late, like, late 70s or early 80s about the kind of, that, that uses zombies as a kind of, um, uh, as a metaphor for consumerism? Um, <laughs> Dawn, Dawn of the Living Dead, I think it oh, is. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, and, um, you know, too many people are basically living their lives as they've been, you know, turn on the TV go to work, drink coffee, come home, drink alcohol, buy the things you're supposed to yeah. buy. You get your bit of time off. And we, we, of course we are alive in moments, but we're too often asleep. And the key is to mm -hmm. use our <laughs> short window that we have to do something and to think about what we're doing. Yeah. And, and that involves stopping and enjoying those moments rather than moving on to the next moment. James, we've just come out of probably, well, definitely in the last 100 years, one of the strangest periods of time with this pandemic and all the fear and uncertainty in our society. And all this discussion about the future and maybe rethinking the ways that we consume things, um, deeper definitions about what true satisfaction means. What, how do we bring all this together? And, and how do you feel about the word hope moving forward in the future, like, you know, especially with what's what we've all been through in the last year. I mean, are, are we going to come out of this better? Isn't hope a small town in Kansas, as, as one of your politicians used to say? <laughs> <laughs> a politician that I had a lot of time for. Um, you have so guy. much. It's, it's remarkable how much trivia and, and names that you remember. I got to <laughs> say, you're, you're like a walking encyclopedia, man. No, but that was his line, right? Wasn't it? Uh, I guess his line, so. Hope is a, t a place in Kansas or Alabama or wherever. Um, I'm an optimist. 
I'm really optimistic. Uh, this has been a really <laughs> surreal, deeply pleasant time. But I didn't have to go to war. Um, my ancestors had to fight and they got blown up. One of my granddads was blown up on the beach at Dunkirk three times oh, and spent nine months in an iron lung. And luckily, he maybe may, died at 89. So, pff, you know, life was okay for him ultimately. But that probably wasn't too much fun. And, mm. um, you know, the, the awful time we've had through the pandemic, we were like, you've got to stay at home and watch Netflix. Yeah, that's boring. But it's not that bad. You know, so I feel that um, I feel very optimistic about what humans achieve. I think we solved the problem of scarcity. Lucky us because of consumerism, because of, you know, the industrial revolution. We don't live next to our animals unless they're clean animals because they're pets. Um, and because of all this technology, we, we've been able to do this. We're still right. connected. Oh, think you about know. what the pandemic would have been like pre-Zoom. And pre, you know, video calling. And uh, although when I, I was a... Go on. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, pre-internet. I mean, even 20 yeah. years ago, we would all... Yeah. I mean, talk about depths of depression. I mean, we couldn't yeah. do anything. Although, when I was a kid, if, if it snowed a lot, we couldn't get to school. There'd be all these headlines in the papers like, oh, you know, it's terrible. The schools are closed. And we'd all go sledging, right? It was great. Nowadays, the poor yeah. kids have to work because they can connect with their teachers. <laughs> I really feel sorry for them. But I feel really positive about the 20s. What happens after a dip like this is often there's a real bounce back. And there's some interesting data. There's a great guy called Randy White, a company called uh, White Hutchison, um, in somewhere in the Midwest, I think, who's looked at some great data, particularly in the States, on the bounce back that's coming. But I've seen some other data. And it's worth pointing out, you know, my stuff about my forecasting, I, I, I would tout my ability. But I wrote that book, Stuffication, about this move from materialism to experientialism. And the reason I self-published at first, Dan, was that nobody believed me that I was true. The publishers in New York and London said no. 75 of them said no, because they said, it's a nice idea, James, but it isn't true. But since that book came out, you know, lots of people have jumped on board and said, actually, this is happening, McKinsey and, and, and others. Um, and I'm seeing the signs. I feel I, I, I've seen signs in different industries. Uh, you know, the numbers of people booking for Meowwolf in, in Vegas. Uh, there's a company called um, the Institute of Competitive Socializing who have this wonderful thing called Swingers. Is, is swinging your thing, Dan? Um, not yet. No, <laughs> tell, tell me more. <laughs> this is, this, this is in, indoor crazy golf, what you guys I think would call mini golf. And they've been successful in London and they're, they're just opening, I think this year in Chicago and New York. And, uh, you know, with it between the pandemics, everyone's coming back to real life experiences. I think, um, people are going to be looking to spend money to kickstart the economy. We're going to have a really exciting time. I think we're going to solve the problem with, um, the climate. I feel really positive about that. I'm involved in an accelerator started by a former professor of mine at the University of Cambridge called Carbon 13. And the big mission there is to, um, reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And he's got, bunch of whip smart people involved and people in this accelerator and i'm sure that we will solve those problems do, do you think that that the pandemic has hastened this this move because it's made a it's like a wake-up call it's like hey people darn it not for the climate no i think the pandemic has, has accelerated many trends absolutely um it Okay. Yeah. Look, okay. Maybe. maybe. Could you even say that it's been good for us? Because it, I, I think in a lot of ways it has, 
it's made us rethink a lot of things. You know the old line from Solon, the, the Athenian wise man from that from the Herodotus's histories, where he says, "Never call a man happy till he's dead." He was asked by the king of Lydia, a guy called Croesus, who was the richest man in the known world at the time. He said, "Am I happy?" He said. I can't say. And he said, like, well, what do you mean? I've got all this. And he ends up, of course, he loses his kingdom, all his kids are killed, and he has a terrible end of his life. But he was very happy. So calling this good thing or a bad thing is really hard to know at this point. Um, I feel the same way about Brexit, for what it's worth. Um, and even Donald Trump, I feel that he was a blip. I think he was a, an aberration. And for me, very, very, very funny. And I really miss him. Please bring him, <laughs> please bring him back because this guy Joe Biden is sensible he gets things done he doesn't make a fuss about it and he's not insane humans solve problems the hero's journey is person problem solution Kurt Vonnegut called it the man in whole story and what we did was when we, when we had scarcity is we solved it and now we have the problems of abundance we're solving those and so yeah, I feel pretty optimistic about the future. We're going to have better experiences. The WXO that I founded with people like Joe Pine, with brilliant people around the world, we're about creating better experiences, which means that people will have better product experiences, better brand experiences, better experiences of life. Um, the shift from caring about GDP to caring about well-being is important. We will live not only longer lives, but I think better, more meaningful, happier lives in the future as well. Thanks to great designers like you, Dan. Well, thank you. And your, your statement just now just brought us back full circle to my first question about, about prosperity and, and a rethinking about what it really means. And it, it is about creating, well, more meaningful lives and more fulfilled lives, um, happier individuals and so forth. And Certainly design is a part of that. And you can be sure that the audience that we just spoke to has that in mind about what can I do as a designer? What can I do as an architect or, or a UX designer to, to move that bar, to raise it, to move it forward? So, James, I cannot thank you enough. I have so enjoyed this conversation. You and I could, could yammer on for another day, I think. <laughs> so... Um, Keep up the amazing work that you've been doing. I so look forward to your third book and more conversations. And I will see you at another bar in Las Vegas sometime <laughs> soon, James. Sometime soon. Thanks, Dan. Right. Fantastic <laughs> question. Thanks. Thanks so much for everything. All right. Take care. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Prism. Follow us on whipsaw.com or your favorite streaming platform. And we'll be back with more thought-provoking episodes soon. Prism is hosted by Dan Harden, Principal Designer and CEO of Whipsaw, produced by Gabrielle Whelan and Isabella Glenn. Mix and sound design by Eric Buell.